welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. And we are looking at modern Chinese history through the frame of revolutionary movements, and we're starting around 1839 with the Opium War and continuing up to the present day. This is the first episode in the real, like, the main thing. You just got through five episodes of kind of some background information, uh, just some housekeeping before we get into it. Uh, the main podcast will always be free. I'd like to try to get to 100 paid subscribers to start producing supplementary episodes, deep dives on lives of interesting people, technology that's involved in all this, uh, zooming in on special interest items, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. Uh, you can also join the Substack as another way to support the podcast. And remember, another way to support for free is rate and review on all platforms and share with your friends. Share with history podcasts you like as well. You can write into them. Um, so here we go, getting into the episode itself. If you're asking, why are things like this? It's too late to understand. Um, like, you know, okay, so as of this recording, there's a war going on in Ukraine. So, like, you know, why is Russian history like this? Why is Ukrainian history like this? Why is Eastern Europe like this? There's that saying, the perfect time to plant a tree was about a hundred years ago, the second best time to plant a tree is now. Well, let's see if we can start a hundred years ago from whatever's going to happen in the future, but let's get started right now. Uh, some basic rules about language uh, as I use it. It's really hard to remember European names because we don't have any experience of the languages that they come from. Like so, the McCartney mission, which I believe we're going to be talking about today. Okay, McCartney, uh, Paul McCartney, a uh, little different, but yeah, I can remember that. Just a twist on the spelling. You know, Chinese culture is, you know, has as complicated a system of titles for its monarchs and aristocrats as you could wish. Humans are the same everywhere. We like to call our uh, important people important-sounding things. We like complicated names for you know, for our important people. Uh, I am going to use one name for everybody I introduce, uh, and if I slip on that, well, I slip on that. Uh, I remember reading in the, one of the, you know, things before the main text of Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence. Lawrence just took a devil-may-care attitude to the romanizations of Arabic names. I'm going to do better than that, but better is relative. I might refer to their other names. I'm going to try to stick to one name, the one most commonly known in history materials, so that you can remember who we're talking about. So if that means, so if, if you're somebody who really, really knows a ton about China, and you hear me do something like consistently refer to Queen Elizabeth as Windsor, which I believe might be right in some way. Okay, I'm sorry, and this is the only apology you'll be getting. I might repeat this warning or heads up in other episodes, but 
you know, you get it once, just maybe you'll see the same one multiple times. Okay, so uh, in the precursor episodes, we talked about the idea of uh, the Qing dynasty losing its homeostasis, like its ability to self-regulate, keep the foreigners out, keep in internal order in, uh, you know, we're in charge and we're making the decisions. Um, even when the ruling regime still has tons of power and, you know, and, and prestige, um, you know, that, that means that potential rebels don't even try. Okay, but you lose prestige, you lose potential, uh, you lose power, you, lo you start to look bad. Lots of potential rebels are going to try. All the tries will eventually grind down the regime. So we're going to look... Uh, is that a hiccup or what? I don't know. Anyway, we're going to start with looking at the Flint Affair of 1759 and the McCartney Mission of 1793, at or near the peak of Qing power and the British still trying to go through proper channels to open up trade with China. We'll use these instances as a ladder to climb down inside China at the time and see what's going on. If, uh, you know, if there are foreign references, it's to provide context to understand what's going on in China. Um, so this is the, I mean, this podcast is going to be kind of the four dummies and four foreigners version. Anybody who knows more about Chinese history than I do, I send me your podcast. I Maybe I'd love to hear it. Anyway, um, we're not going to be talking a lot about the East India episode, the East India Company in this episode. That's the next episode. Um, I was thinking of trying to pass over the East India Company, but really the history of the East India Trading Company uh, really shows a lot of the important international differences that caused the Opium War to be possible, that the Chinese and the British were operating on very different levels of understanding of how all that worked. And so just as bad thing stacked upon bad thing, it, it led to the Opium War. So we'll go into that next episode. Oh God, these... these Anybody who wants to create a science fiction universe and base your story on the history of the East India Company, it's all there. It's all there. It's really great. Um, so here we go. The Flint Affair of 1759. Okay, so the city of Guangzhou is a, is a huge city, an all-consuming colossus on, on the south coast of China. Uh, and for... Years and years and years and years and years, it's been involved in foreign trade. Uh, you can kind of compare it, uh, the, you can compare the, now all trade with the outside world at this point in time was run through Guangzhou. All of it. That, that's where they had to go. Uh, you can kind of compare this to the Casa de Contratación, the House of Trade in Seville, later Cadiz, Spain, uh, for their New World Empire. So, so in Spanish America, local producers didn't have to compete with foreign industries, but it was harder for local businesses to connect with neighboring colonies because it, it, like, it all had to go 
through Seville, even if the Dutch or the English or the French are just right over there on that other island. Uh, there was a similar crisis in the British North American colonies about ensuring the development of the English merchant fleet. You know, like so they it like so none of this is just stupid or pointless. But and there are strategic reasons for such limitations, as you'll see, like you know, like the like the British wanting all trade with North America to pass through their merchant marine. It's to ensure British supremacy. Like they relied on their navy, they relied on their merchant fleet. Um, and so we'll see what the the Guangzhou system is. Okay, so why Guangzhou? Why is that the center? The, the, the Canton system from 1757 to 1842. Uh, it was kind of a one-stop on a long road of the Qing dynasty maintaining control and legitimacy of their rule. The Qing were established in 1644. That's a little over 100 years later. Um, this is, a, you know, this is... So the, the Qing had been around for 100 years, and remember, the American Civil War ended over 150 years ago, and that's a still a live issue in the news. So, so the Qing were trying to maintain their legitimacy. Um, Chinese dynasties tend to go about 200 to 400 years. Like the Han Dynasty, I believe they had 200 years. Then Wang Mang, the usurper, came up, and then there were 200 more years. Um, Okay, so Guangzhou, uh, Canton, is right on the south coast of China. It's It was convenient for foreigners, because it's just right there, right up from their colonies in Southeast Asia. Their trading posts, their, you know, everything they had at the time. And before the closure of other ports, just convenience and habit made Guangzhou the focus of trade anyway. Uh, Russian ships were able to use North China ports, but other Europeans had to use the Guangzhou port. So Russians sailing down from Kamchatka or later Vladivostok when that became Russian. No, I think that, that was 1860, wasn't it? Okay, so... Crimey. Crimey. Blimey? Anyway. Uh, the... So everybody was going to Guangzhou anyway... So when they restricted things, they just they they restricted it to the place everybody was going to anyway. Uh, so partly this was to protect foreigners from pirates. Taiwan added to you know like the the island of Taiwan was added to China by pirates who were later co-opted by the Qing. Um, you know so like 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 Chinese pirates, long history, very long history. And it's to protect Chinese from armed foreign vessels being off the coast. Uh, if you look at the history of the East India Company, pirates were uh, partly uh, very helpful to the company bottom line, but they were they just also came with the they were kind of parasites hanging on the the body of the the trading company and. You know, it caused a lot of trouble with a lot of the Indian rulers. Well, the Chinese, maybe maybe not knowing anything about that, they needed to suppress piracy, and they ran everything through Guangzhou so that 
so that the government could govern. Uh, so in this combined to uh, help make uh, taxing import and export easier. Um, and then at the at the time all this kicks off, English ships had been able to go to other ports and they had problems with corruption in Guangzhou officials. Um, and so the James Flint affair involves one man named James Flint. He was adopted in the 1730s by a Captain Rigby and taken to Guangzhou. Uh, Rigby tells him, you know, learn the local language so you can get a job using it someday, and leaves. Three years later, uh, Rigby sends a letter to bring James to Bombay, but Rigby died before James could get there, uh, and the East India Company people in India send him back to Guangzhou. He, grow, he grows up in this middle place between China and England, like so in the in the uh, foreigner compound in in you know in Guangzhou. There, he learns to speak Cantonese, a bit of Mandarin, and then he learns to read and write Chinese. His written, you know, because written Chinese was kind of like written Latin for a lot of European history. It's a literary language of exchange, but not really what people spoke. Uh, today, if you learn Chinese, reading and writing are now based on the Beijing standard, uh, closer to the vernacular. But there's still it's still a written intermediate language for other Chinese dialects, like Shanghainese, Cantonese, again, um, other regional variations. He became an interpreter between English ship captains and Chinese traders in business. You want to bring your own interpreters? Because they'll be on your side. Even better, someone from your own culture who understands your interests and can advocate for what you want. Later, he became a supercargo, that is, an East India Company representative in Guangzhou. So the trouble at Guangzhou, more specifically, was the senior Chinese customs official was demanding bribes and charging higher taxes than allowed. You know, so the emperor says, I take 10%, I charge 15, 20%, and I give the emperor the 10% he requested. Um, trade leaders and local officials combined to form a special interest group to keep foreign trade fo focused on Guangzhou. So, you know, compare American government contractors. You know, they can donate a million dollars to help a congressional campaign and what and that can mean they get a you know billion dollar contract for their company and then later those those congressmen can when they're out of office can be come to work for you as a lobbyist cuz they know Washington DC well trade leaders and local officials you know like the uh, the local officials are going to need to keep the the local trade leaders happy um Apparently, the governor of Guang, Guangdong area of the Guangdong area petitioned to have the Canton system put in place. Um, Wikipedia is not perfect, but let's point out the reality: the emperor has to rule with some persuasion and rewards to get people to obey. So the emperor has to keep the people at home happy while keeping foreign trade open. So. You know, the, the governor of Guangdong is the guy keeping Guangdong loyal to the emperor, so 
the emperor needs to, you know, scratch his back for his back being scratched. Uh, so theoretically, you're supposed to go through the chain of command, uh, go through your assigned contact who, is, who goes to his guy, to his guy, to, all the way up to the emperor. Um, in So we'll see what happens here. James Flint has the idea to get directly to the government in Beijing because they couldn't get through the corrupt local officials. It just wasn't happening. No openings. Um, from 1755 to 1757, he was making trips up the Chinese coast to try to build trading relationships at other ports. On June 13, 1759, uh, he sailed from Macau to go deliver a petition to the emperor to investigate the Hapo, the chief, the chief official in charge of trade at Guangzhou, and to open up other ports for trade. Uh, the British had experience of profitable trade at Ningbo, uh, much further up the coast, and so he was trying to see if you know, he could get something there. He got up to Ningbo, and he was absolutely forbidden from getting off the ship, told to go back south. And, you know, if there's a decision coming down from on high, lower-level officials are at are risk-averse in searching for alternatives. Um, you know, so, so it's like, the emperor said the thing, so, like, you know, yeah, I, I get it. You know, if I use my brain, I could probably think of a few alternatives, things to do. But the emperor said the thing, and that's what I have to do. So, eh, get lost. Um, monsoon winds were blowing northeast, so he couldn't just go back until at least three months later, so that gave him some time to play with. So he went further up the coast to Tianjin, uh, which is Beijing's port city, and a an all-consuming colossus in its own right. I've been there twice. Um, it paid a huge bribe to an official in charge of a fort to be allowed into Tianjin to forward a message to the emperor. And as luck would have it, the emperor got back to him. Favor favorable response, kind of. Uh, for the emperor, news other than everything's fine here, nothing to see here is hard to come by. So the emperor moved in favor of the British request to remove the corrupt, you know, hapo. So James Flint is sent back to Guangzhou overland to carry out the emperor's decision. The corrupt hapo, hapo was fired and an honest one was put in place. But then James Flint was put in jail for a few years in Guangzhou for appealing directly to the emperor. So in, in Chinese business culture even today, it's really bad to go over your manager's head. I don't know what to do if you have a problem with your direct manager. You know, it's like, it's like guys, I, I, I need help. I, okay, but so... His Chinese teacher was executed for helping him compose the message to the emperor, uh, and the Chinese teacher's head was hung on display in public as a warning to anyone else who wanted to help foreigners learn Chinese. For this account, um, well, most of this episode is based on material from Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt, which I will reference in the show notes. Imperial Twilight, the Opium War, and the End of China's Last Golden Age. I'll try to give you lots of reading recommendations as I go through, but of course, 
This podcast is I Read It So You Don't Have To. At any rate, you'll get the benefit of at least somebody else talking about it. Uh, so closing, so this is all this stuff that had been happening. The British were trying to find ways to open up more trade with China. And they tried to find ways to bridge the gap, have local people, have their people learn the language, um, have people make it their life mission to join, to, uh, to learn that language. Uh, so China had certain ways of doing things that worked for them. They didn't need to change to manage their own affairs. And to be fair, ignoring out things outside of what you're used to dealing with, that's a necessary survival skill. Like, so you teach children to ignore strangers offering candy, a chance to play with a puppy, etc. Because, like, that's not what mom and dad told you to do and strangers who approach children are probably bad. You know, if, um, what, like, there's, there's no reason for strangers to walk up to children and talk to them about, that. There's, there's no good that goes that way. Um, it, it doesn't matter what wonderful experiences new people can open up for you, there's much more danger outside of certain contexts. If just somebody comes up to you, it's like, what's going on? Like, like state your business fast or you're going to get hit. You know, like, that. it's just like, like primal instinct. So it, 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 it makes sense on that level. And there were consequences for Chinese who helped outsiders. Uh, and the coming blow to the Chinese way of doing things it's going to take some decades to arrive, but we're going to be building up uh, miscommunication and uh, intentional twisting of things, and just one thing's going to lead to another, and British military force is going to show up on the shores of China. Okay, so uh, about supporting the podcast, uh, of course you can su you can support for free by giving me a rating and giving me a review on all the platforms you can find. Um, if you'd like to give, uh, buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. C as in Chinese, R as in revolutions. Buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Join the substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. Uh, go behind the scenes uh, at the podcast, I hear about my life in China. Also, I'd love to hear from you at ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. This has been Nathan Bennett, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.